Psalm 123, continuing our series, Films for Radio, which is a journey through the Psalms of Ascent. You may not know this about me, but I am a complete idiot. I really am. And one evidence of how much of an idiot I am is this. I am allergic to helplessness. Oh, to be sure, I like to think that I am helpless and need God's grace, but it only takes doing a little inventory of the past few days or the past few hours to see that although I like to think that I am helpless, many times I live like I can handle and do life on my own. I'm sure none of you can relate to that. Yes, it's true. In one sense, I really do believe that I am helpless and I need God. I mean, I'm a Christian, of course I believe that. But how many times do I let my beliefs and my theology really drive what I do? I really like to think that I am helpless and that I'm desperate for Jesus, but the way I go about my days sometimes... I actually prove that my beliefs and my theology have not traveled from my brain down into my heart. And that's why I say that I am a complete idiot. Because I am allergic to helplessness sometimes. Ray Ortland, who is the the pastor of Emmanuel Church in Nashville, describes what he calls the Emmanuel mantra. It's part of the DNA of the church that he pastors, and it goes like this. Number one, I'm a complete idiot. Number two, my future is incredibly bright. And number three, anybody can get in on this. The good news of the kingdom of God is that we are complete idiots. That's actually really good news if you can stomach it. If we are in union with Christ, then it's true. Our futures are incredibly bright. And anybody, look around, anybody can get in on this, right? We are living proof that anybody can get on this Jesus thing. Just look around. You'll be surprised. That guy? Yes, that guy. And you. Anybody can get in on this gospel thing if they can stomach their helplessness and their desperate need of Jesus. I'm a complete idiot, my future is incredibly bright, and anybody can get in on this. I love that. And we'll actually see all of that in Psalm 123 today. If you struggle to pray, then Psalm 123 is just for you. It's like an idiot's guide to praying. And the big idea that emerges out of Psalm 123 is that God is saying to us, come empty-handed, come Weary, come heavy laden. That, of course, is what Jesus said in Matthew 11. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. There's the invitation right there, Grace. There's the invitation. Jesus invites the weak. Jesus invites the weary. He invites the downtrodden, the tired, the exhausted, the heavy laden, and he invites the idiots to come and find rest. But you have to come empty-handed, which means that you have to admit that you don't have it all together. 
You have to admit that you need help. You have to admit that you are allergic to helplessness. Quite frankly, you have to admit that you're an idiot in order to come to Jesus. But be of good courage today. Jesus loves idiots, especially when they come empty-handed and acknowledging their weakness. And that's exactly what we will see in Psalm 123. The pilgrims who are journeying to Jerusalem to worship will sing this song of helplessness and they will acknowledge that they have nothing and they desperately need Yahweh's help. They are helpless. They have learned that helplessness is how the Christian life works. So look at Psalm 123 beginning in verse 1. And hear the word of the Lord. To you I lift up my eyes. Oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens. Now remember what we've seen so far in this series. The Psalms of Ascent are Psalms 120 to 134. They are songs that the ancient Israelites would sing as they made their journey to Jerusalem to worship during one of the three main yearly festivals. These are the songs that would be playing in their cars as they went on a road trip to Mount Zion. These psalms are snapshots and pictures of life in Israel. They are films for radio. Also, recall how the Psalms of Ascent are structured. They are set up in three, uh, five sets, three sets of five, and each set includes three psalms, and they follow this pattern. The first psalm in each set recalls a problem or some trouble. The second psalm in each set describes Yahweh's ability to protect or keep his people. And then the third psalm in each set focuses on worship in Mount Zion or it focuses on Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And so we're starting a new set today. We have to flip the cassette tape over, if you will, and hit play again. And the first song that starts playing on side two is a song called An Idiot's Guide to Praying. And the first verse of this song tells us about Yahweh the sovereign Lord. The psalmist tells us right off the bat in verse 1 that he lifts his eyes up to Yahweh. The first thing that he tells us about himself is that he is helpless. To look to God, to lift your eyes to God is an act of humility. To look to God is to admit that you are not in control. To look to God is to admit that quite frankly, you are an idiot compared to His wisdom. To look to God is to bend the proud knee and acknowledge that you are helpless without Him, without His grace. To look to God is to position yourself to be a recipient of His grace. This is the posture that grace moves toward. This is the posture to which grace is drawn. Like a magnet, God's grace is drawn to a bended knee, to eyes that are lifted up. God's grace is attracted to helplessness. And that's prayer at its essence. It's acknowledging our helplessness. That's prayer. And prayer is the way that we slog our way through this life. And this is exactly what is happening in Psalm 123. These pilgrims are slogging their way to Jerusalem to worship. And they may at times literally be slogging along through the muck and mire of the road that they're on. But they are especially slogging through the taunts of the proud people who are pestering them on their journey. Which we will read about in just a moment in verses 3 through 4. 
So prayer is the way we slog along through all of the troubles that we encounter in this life. We go to God. We lift our eyes to Him. We tell Him about what's happening in our lives. We tell Him about our problems. We tell Him about the scorn and the contempt that we are enduring. And we do this knowing that Yahweh is not opposed to helping us. It's not an inconvenience to Him. Yahweh loves to intervene and save His people. In fact, Jesus' own name reminds us of this. Do you know what Jesus' name means? In Hebrew, His name is Joshua, and so it comes to us as Jesus. And so Jesus' name actually slogs its way from Hebrew through Aramaic to Greek to Latin and finally lands in English, and we end up with the name Jesus. But his name is actually Joshua, and his name means Yahweh saves. Jesus' name, every time you and I say it, is a reminder that Yahweh saves, that God saves. It's a reminder that God loves to intervene and save his people. It's a reminder that God loves to hear and then answer our prayers. Jesus' name itself is an invitation to us to come and plead our case before him. Because he loves to save people. Jesus' name is an invitation to come to him empty-handed and weary and heavy laden. And the psalmist in Psalm 123, has taken Yahweh up on this invitation. In fact, the first words of this song are, To you, which is emphatic. It's meant to draw attention to the Lord. It's, it's meant to recalibrate those who are singing this song as they travel to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh. It's meant to remind them that their future is incredibly bright. Now notice, too, that the psalmist puts God's character first in verse 1. He says, O oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens. Before he ever brings up his problems, he talks about who God is. Before he ever starts spilling out what his troubles are, he speaks about Yahweh. Now, I'm sure we don't do that as often as we like, do we? But what a difference it makes to begin your prayers by reminding your soul that Yahweh is not just enthroned, but that he is enthroned above the heavens, that will give you the perspective you need as you slog your way through life like these pilgrims in Psalm 123. But here's where our prayers often differ from those in the Bible. Biblical prayers seem to meditate and muse on and mull over God more often than we might do. Have you noticed that? Biblical prayers seem to meditate and muse on and mull over God more often than we might do. Biblical prayers tend to spill more ink on God and what He is like than our prayers do. It's like they know something about God that we don't know or that we have forgotten. They seem to know that when you begin your prayers by focusing on Jesus and who he is and what he has done for you, that it has a way of changing everything. And so right off the bat, Psalm 123 is letting God's character infect everything. It's like the psalmist wants this prayer to break out in heavenly hives. He wants the God who is enthroned in the heavens to affect and permeate this entire prayer right from the get-go. 
And isn't this exactly what you and I need more than anything as we suffer and endure life in a sin-filled world? Don't we need our lives to break out with heavenly hives? Don't we need God to infect and permeate everything that we are going through? What you and I need when we suffer is this. We need God rubbed into our pain. When we suffer, we need God. We need Jesus rubbed deep down into our pain. We need who he, who Jesus is and what he has done for us rubbed down into our pores. We need a vision of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit enthroned up above the heavens, rubbed deep down into our pain and troubles. We need the Holy Spirit to come and infect every area of our hearts. And that's what the psalmist does right out of the gate with this prayer. He gives these travelers, these, his fellow companions, he gives them a glimpse of the enthroned God. And what happens when you get this glimpse of the triune God seated above the heavens? It kind of has a way of humbling you. It kind of has a way of making your knees bend. Look at verse 2. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. You see, there's just something about seeing Yahweh that has a way of knocking the breath out of you. There's just something about seeing God that knocks you down a size or two or thousand There's just something about seeing Jesus that will knock your socks off. Catching a glimpse of the enthroned God kind of has a way of making your knees bend. That is, if you're willing to be humbled. That is, if you're willing to admit your weakness. That is, if you can stomach your weakness. But I suspect that you are like me and at times you are allergic to weakness. Now, why are we this way? Why, when we've been, some of us have been Christians for so long, and we know the Bible, and we know Jesus, why are we still sometimes allergic to weakness? Because we don't like to admit that we need help. The old Adam dies a long, slow, painful death in our hearts. The old Adam's knees are old. We forget that helplessness is how prayer works. Helplessness is how the Christian life works. To be a Christian is to have knees that work well. And that's what we see in verse 2. Servants humble themselves. Maidservants bend at the knee. Servants and maidservants look to their masters for everything. The eye that looks to the master acknowledges weakness, acknowledges need. A lifted eye implies a bent knee. And the hand that acknowledges the lifted eye is the master who is willing to meet that need. And that's prayer. We look to God. We lift our eyes. We acknowledge our need. We acknowledge our helplessness. And Jesus extends his hand and he meets our need. That's prayer. That's faith. That's what coming to Jesus is all about. 
Verse 2 is dropping hints like crazy to us. Verse 2 is telling us that when we approach God, we are to come empty-handed. We are to come weary. We are to come heavy-laden. That's how you honor God, Christian. That's how you glorify Jesus. You come empty-handed. You come and you admit that you need him, that you desperately need him, that you need his life, you need his death, you need his resurrection, that you need his righteousness, that you need his gospel. You come weary from trying to be good enough, trying so hard to obey, and you just collapse, and you admit that you are weak, and you admit that you are helpless, that you are unable to meet the demands of God's holy law. You come heavy laden. You come with all of your burdens, all of your cares, and you just drop them at Jesus' feet. And you tell him that you can't go on anymore. That you can't do it yourself anymore. That's faith. That's how you glorify Jesus. Paul Miller says, The gospel... God's free gift of grace in Jesus only works when we realize we don't have it all together. The same is true for prayer. The very thing we are allergic to, our helplessness, is what makes prayer work. It works because we are helpless. We can't do life on our own. Prayer mirrors the gospel. In the gospel, the Father takes us as we are because of Jesus and gives us his gift of salvation. In prayer, the Father receives us as we are because of Jesus and gives us his gift of help. We look at the inadequacy of our praying and give up, thinking something is wrong with us. God looks at the adequacy of his Son and delights in our sloppy, meandering prayers. That's exactly what we see in Psalm 123. This is a gospel-centered psalm because we see these people acknowledging their helplessness and looking to God alone for help. See, anybody can get in on this gospel thing if they are willing to admit their weakness, if they can stomach their weakness. Anybody can get in on this thing. Anybody can get in on this Jesus thing if they are willing to bend their knees. Complete idiots are welcome in God's kingdom, if they are able to bend at the knee. The good news of the gospel is that God's grace is available for complete idiots like you and me. Grace flows downhill. Like a magnet, God's grace is drawn to a bended knee, to eyes that are lifted up. God's grace is attracted to helplessness, attracted to weakness. And what we'll see in the last few verses of this psalm is that weakness is the channel that allows these pilgrims to access God's grace. Look at verse 3. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. These pilgrims are praying for God's mercy or grace, depending on which translation you have. The idea with this word that gets translated either as mercy or grace is the idea of favor. It's the Hebrew word for grace. It's the gospel, really, 
They're asking for a heartfelt response from Yahweh to be gracious to them, to be merciful to them, to have compassion on them, and to give them what they want, namely relief from those who are scorning them. And so these traveling worshipers are asking Yahweh to be gracious in these verses. They want grace. Specifically, they want Yahweh to intervene and respond and shut the mouths of these scoffers. Now, probably what is happening here is that as these pilgrims are making their way to Jerusalem to worship, they have to endure the scorn and the ridicule of unbelievers who are mocking them as they're traveling to Jerusalem. So I think unbelievers are in mind here, but it could also be fellow Israelites, those who are not making the journey to Jerusalem. Because they want nothing to do with that old-time Israelite religion. And so they're mocking these Israelites, fellow Israelites, and saying, you're, you're going to go do the Festival of Booths again? Really? You're, you're going to make a little makeshift hut and, and live in that? Really? Okay, go right ahead. Maybe that's what's going on here too. And as these pilgrims journey to Jerusalem, they are fed up with all of this contempt and scorn that they have to listen to on the way. They're weary of the taunts, weary of being ridiculed and laughed at because of their faith in Yahweh. And so they speak in these verses of, of really, it's literally being full of all of this ridicule and scorn. Their, their souls are stuffed with all of this ridicule. That's the idea of the Hebrew word here. They're stuffed with all of the scorn and the contempt, and they can't take it anymore. So they're asking Yahweh to stoop down and be gracious to them and to stop the scorn and the contempt that they have had enough of. They want Yahweh to extend grace to them. They want and they need grace. And what we actually see here is that Psalm 123 is a gift of God's grace to us. Psalm 123 is God extending his grace to us because what Psalm 123 reminds us of is that life is not easy. Psalm 123 reminds us that we will suffer and we will have to endure hostility in this world. And so God in his grace shows us in Psalm 123 the reality of being pilgrims in this world. He tells us right here in this psalm that life is hard and the journey is hard. Yes, sometimes God seems far away in the heavens, like verse 1 says, and our enemies seem so close, just like in this psalm. That's true. Sometimes it feels like Jesus is light years away, doesn't it? That's Psalm 123. Yes, God is enthroned up above the heavens, but sometimes that seems so far away, doesn't it? And our enemies feel so close, right here, right now, in our face, with their taunts, their scorn, and their contempt. Now, why? Why does God allow this? Derek Kidner says, it is a function of the Psalms to touch the nerve of this problem and keep its pain alive against the comfort of our familiarity with a corrupt world. God gives us songs like Psalm 123 to touch the nerve of this problem so that we will not get comfortable in this world. There's a lot of ink spilled in the Psalms about our enemies and about our troubles precisely to touch the nerve so that we will be reminded that life is hard, to remind us that people will hate our guts for following Jesus. So don't be surprised when they hate you. When the nerves of our souls get touched, we can't get comfortable with this world. 
Not this version of it. We're waiting for the better one. This psalm leaves you feeling uncomfortable because there is no resolution after verse 4. There's no verse 5. You want it to end and read that the prayer was answered. You want a verse 5. But we don't get that here, do we? Why? Because this is where life takes us sometimes. We pray, and we pray, and we pray, and sometimes we don't see the answer. Sometimes we don't get a verse 5, at least not the way that we want it. Of course, God always answers our prayers. That's true, just not in the way that we want sometimes. Or we don't see him answer it, but he does in his time and in his ways, and that's an uncomfortable place to be, huh? Sometimes we are left hanging, just like at the end of Psalm 123. Sometimes you pray and you pour your heart out to God, and then you have to wait and wait and wait and wait. And you might just have to wait until you stand before Jesus to see how he answered your prayers. And if you do have to wait until then, I suspect that Jesus will tell you something like this on that day. Psalm 123 stopped in verse 4. It ended with the contempt of the proud. There was no answer to the prayer. It just ended abruptly. Just like that situation you were praying about that one time. You thought I was light years away. You thought I wasn't close and wasn't working and wasn't answering your prayers. But I was. Now let me show you how. Here are a few extra verses that I wrote to your Psalm 123 experience that explain how I did answer your prayer. And Jesus will explain what he was doing then at that point in your life. What he was doing for your good and for his glory. He will give you your verse 5 on that day. And when Jesus shows you verses 5 through 10 of your Psalm 123 experience on that day, when you stand before him, you'll bow down before him. You'll bend your knees and you'll worship him. And you'll lift your eyes up to him and see that while you were enduring that hard road in life, he was there loving you all the way through it. But until that day, there's a lot of verses 3 through 4 trouble that we have to endure, right? Until then, life can be uncomfortable. And when we aren't comfortable with this broken world, what do we do? We cry out to the God enthroned above the heavens and we realize that he is closer than even our enemies. Yahweh is on his throne where he rules the universe, but his location does not mean that he is removed from you. He is with you. Emmanuel, God with us. And that's the point that this psalm is trying to make. Sure, we'd, we'd love resolution to this psalm. We'd love to see it end with something like, Yahweh answered our prayers. Yahweh heard our cries and saved us from our scoffers. Let Israel worship the name of Yahweh. But it doesn't end that way, does it? Even if it told us what their enemies were saying, then that might help us a little bit. But we don't even get that. The psalmist doesn't tell us what these people were saying to these traveling pilgrims. So why didn't he? These are the kind of questions I ask when I look at God's word. Why did it end? What were they saying? I want to know what they were saying. That would help me. We don't get any of that. Why? See, we are dying, maybe if you're like me, I'm dying from curiosity, but the psalmist never tells us what was being said to them because that's not important. 
It doesn't matter what they were saying. It doesn't matter if there's resolution to this psalm or not. Those things are not that important. The psalmist has intentionally omitted what he thinks is irrelevant. And he has included what is most important. And what is most important is what he told you back in verse 1. Oh, you who are enthroned in the heavens. What the psalmist wants you to walk away with is not having your curiosity satisfied. He wants you to walk away from Psalm 123, remembering that Yahweh sits enthroned above the heavens, and you can call on him just like these pilgrims did in Psalm 123. You pray to the same God, Christian, the same God who hears your cries for mercy. The one who just so happens to be enthroned above the heavens. And that ought to be just enough truth to get you through whatever it is that you are going through right now. What you read, what you need right now as you go through whatever trial Jesus has you going through right now is this. Information about God. That's what you need. More information about Jesus. You need to hear about Jesus over and over and over again. More gospel, more reminders about Jesus. You don't need answers. Oh, you'd like answers, but you don't need answers. What you need is God. Answers won't necessarily bring you the peace that you so desperately want, but Jesus will. Answers won't necessarily bring you the peace that you desperately want, but Jesus will. You might get the answers of why things are happening the way they're happening, and you might not get the peace that you want. David Pallison says, your relationship with God is what brings peace, not having every question answered. The God who lives in verse 1 is the one who brings you peace. The God who dispenses mercy and grace to struggling sinners, he is the one who brings peace. And acknowledging your helplessness actually brings you this peace. Admitting that you can do nothing and that you know nothing will bring you the peace that you need. Admitting that you are a complete idiot will bring you the peace that your heart desperately craves. Weakness is the channel that allows you access to God's grace and peace. The gospel uses your weakness as the door to God's grace. That's Psalm 123. That's how grace works. Bending your knee makes grace flow downhill. Helplessness is the door to God's grace. Admitting that you are an idiot is the door to God's grace. Psalm 123 is trying to convince us that Yahweh says to us, Come empty-handed. Come weary. Come heavy laden. Jesus did not say in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who have it all together. He said, Come to me, all who labor And are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Jesus wants helpless people. The criteria 
for coming to Jesus is helplessness. It's being overwhelmed with life, overwhelmed with what's happening in your family, overwhelmed with what's happening in your workplace, overwhelmed with what's happening in this nation. It's being overwhelmed with life. That's the criteria for coming to Jesus. It's just saying, I'm about to lose my mind. I don't think I can make it. That's faith. Has anyone ever told you that faith is saying, I don't think I can make it? It's faith. It's coming messy. It's coming and collapsing at his feet. That's how you get rest. Collapsing at his feet, all overwhelmed and weak and helpless and very messy. It's faith because you're going to Jesus and saying, I can't do it. Can you help? Listen, God does not come to us like a drill sergeant demanding our attention. Attention! Stand up! Eyes forward, soldier! He doesn't do that because he'd catch us all off guard, wouldn't he? When are we ever righteous enough? When are we ever good enough? We'd be laying in our bed and he comes in, attention! What? Scrambling around. We're never good enough. We're never righteous enough. God doesn't come to us like that, like a drill sergeant, examining everything about us, looking us up and down to make sure our hair is cut short enough, to make sure our uniform is pressed, our gun is clean, our bed is made. No, God doesn't come to us to look us up and down like a drill sergeant. Rather, he is a father. He's a father who stands watching for his wayward, prodigal children to come home. And when we arrive, even though we are messy, even though we stink and smell like pigs, even though we are complete idiots who blew our inheritance, he welcomes us home. He hangs on our neck, kissing us profusely. That's grace. Coming home is bending the knee. Coming home is lifting up our eyes. Coming home is helplessness. Coming home is admitting that you are a complete idiot and you need Jesus more than anything. That glorifies Jesus, my friends. And it brings a smile to his face. Think about this. As sinners and rebels who have not lived up to the standard of God's law, as sinners and rebels at our core, we have provoked the kindest, most loving, most gentle person in the universe. And yet, he still loves us. He still says, come. When people provoke me, I don't want to hug them. I want to punch them. You Bring it on. I don't care if you beat me up. I just want you to know that I'm a scrapper and I don't go down easy. You provoke me, I want to fight. We have all provoked the kindest, most loving, the most gentle person in the entire universe with our sin and with our rebellion. And he still loves us. And he still says, come. That's God's knee-jerk reaction is grace and love. God's knee-jerk reaction is love. It is. What was God doing? I'm getting off my notes here, and so I'm going to probably say something to get myself in trouble, but that's okay. It always happens when I deviate. What was God doing before he made the world? What was God doing before he made angels even? When there was just God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They were loving one another. At his core, God is love. He's not a lawgiver at his core before he made anything. 
He was loving. God's knee-jerk reaction to sinners is one of love. I just read about it in Hosea this morning. Israel is walking away, sleeping with other lovers, other gods. And what does God say? He says, I've been drawing you with cords of kindness. I'm not coming after you, beating you with the whips and the terrors of the law. I've been drawing you to myself, Israel. Turn. Romans 2, 4. What leads us to repentance? What leads us to it? Say it. His kindness, not the law. His kindness leads us to repentance. You share the law so that everyone's devastated and they're like, I've broken his laws. You've really broken his heart is what you've done. His kindness leads us to repentance. Hosea 11, I just read it here this morning. Listen to how hesitant God is to bring discipline to Israel. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they refuse to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. In other words, you want to keep walking away from you, I'm going to give you what you want. But that's not what I want to give you. I don't want to give you discipline. Then he says in verse 8, some of the most beautiful words in Scripture. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? They were suburbs of Sodom and Gomorrah. How can I treat you like them? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. What's God's knee-jerk reaction to our sin and rebellion? He says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. God's compassion grows warm and tender when we run away from him. What kind of God is this? A God of love, a God of mercy, a God of compassion, the God that the psalmist is crying out to in Psalm 123. My compassion grows warm and and tender. I've never met anyone that I have angered and pestered and provoked. And they said to me, when you did that, my compassion grew warm and tender towards you. There's only one person like that, and his name is Jesus. And he welcomes sinners like us home. Will you come home today? Will you admit your sin and your rebellion and turn from living for yourself Turn from breaking God's law. Turn from breaking God's heart and trust in Jesus. Becoming a Christian is just admitting that you're a complete idiot and then running home to Jesus. Becoming a Christian is just admitting that you are a complete idiot who blew your inheritance, wound up in the pig pen, and then you ran home to Jesus. What's stopping you from doing that today? Anybody can get in on this. Anybody can get in on this Jesus thing. 
Why not you today? Let's pray. Father, I'm afraid we don't understand who you are, who you really are. Yes, God, you hate our sin. Of course you do. You're holy. There's no one like you. You're set apart. But what an amazing God you are when your children turn away from you and your compassion grows warmer. As parents, we sometimes get a glimpse of that, Father, when our children walk away and and our heart is compassionate towards them. and, And then we flip to the anger side and we get frustrated But you, your heart moves in compassion towards us, Father. Would you rekindle our love for your son this morning, Father? Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.